0: So we're going to look at First John. This evening will probably mostly be introduction. Uh, we may not get into the text. I have, I have about 10 pages of notes here, but it will probably go pretty quick. We'll see what happens. See what time it is now. And we'll go from there. So uh, before we read any of the text, let's uh, get going with some introduction. And the first point then would be Who wrote the epistle that we know as 1 John? Because the author does not name himself in this book, this letter. The only other book in the Bible, or in the New Testament anyway, that's not identified is Hebrews. Every other book, the writer gives his name right off the bat. You know, Paul, James, Peter. um, He gives his name, his credentials. You know, Paul, an apostle of Christ... Uh, but John assuming it's John and I believe it is uh, he he gives nothing he just jumps right in tradition holds that it was written by John the Apostle part of what's known as the Johannine works which would be the Gospel of John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Book of Revelation but not everybody agrees Uh, again tradition says that that's who the author is, but uh, and and that held that held up in the church until well for about 1700 years, and it wasn't until the late 1700s, 1800s, where guys started to look a little closer at the language and they thought, nah, it's not doesn't quite line up. It's not the same style. It's not written the same way. Oh, using the same language, same words, and there are. Some other Johns spoken of in the early church. John the Evangelist, John the Elder, John the Presbyter, John of Patmos, and of course the beloved disciple. So there's argument that these are all different guys. Uh, I don't have any problem believing that they're all the same guy, you know, John the Elder. And So some people also would say that there's no way that the Gospel of John and the Epistles were written by the same person. Again, because of the differences in the style of writing, they just don't see that it lines up. And there are those who say that John the Apostle didn't write any of these five books. Not the Gospel, the Book of Revelation, or, or any of the letters. They don't think that's the Apostle John. The first author in the early church to actually quote from 1 John and attribute it to him was Irenaeus. And this is important because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. So Polycarp would have known, I think, pretty well, and would have passed that information on to whoever he was teaching, that it was indeed the apostle who wrote the letter. And then uh, sometime later, and I say sometime, I mean about 300 years later, or 200 years later, church historian Eusebius, he wrote this, but of the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistles, has been accepted without dispute, both now and in ancient times. So that was... Sometime around 300 A.D., which might have been 200 years or so after uh, the letter was written, uh, he's writing that, uh, that it's been accepted. And, and again, it was for, for many hundreds of years until people started to look closer and uh, mess around with it. There are similarities between the Gospel of John and First John. You can compare uh, We can look at John chapter 1. I know we didn't even read 1 John yet, but pretty popular, well-known verses in, in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And if you go ahead to verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So compare that to some of the opening words in 1 John. You see what was from the beginning, and the life was manifested. We've seen it, testified to it, eternal life. And further on in the letter, he uses the term light a lot. So you can compare those two passages together and you can see the similarities, especially when you consider that that's how both works were started with those particular words. And then First uh, John 2.2, 2, which everybody likes. Um, he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. If you go back to the, to the Gospel of John... And chapter 11, you can see where the Apostle John wrote something that is similar. It's not word for word, but it's certainly similar. Chapter 11, verse 49, starting at verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Uh, He did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Very similar themes where... Christ is going to die, not just for the nation, but for others also. Pretty, a pretty clear parallel passage. In addition to those passages there, both books, the Gospel of John and the Epistle of 1 John, contain a series of contrasts that show up a lot. Light and darkness, life and death, love and hate, and truth and and lies. Both of those, are all four of those themes show up, those contrasts show up in both works. And the grammatical styles are similar. Not that I'm a Greek, you know, expert and can tell you that, but they are similar. And it's interesting that in the, in the letter of 1 John, there's only about 600 different words. So, you know, there's a lot of words obviously he uses over and over again. There's only about 600 words. He has a very small vocabulary, which makes sense because John was uneducated. He was a fisherman. So his his education was not like the Apostle Paul or even Luke. And I've read that there are more similarities between the language of 1 John and the Gospel of John than there are between the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which we know are both written by Luke but they're actually very different in the way they're written and the language that's used. Major theological themes in these two books, 1 John and the Gospel of John, the Incarnation, uh, unique, eternal Son of God, that Jesus is the source of eternal life and that he is eternal life, and that believers once walked in darkness although we don't walk in darkness any longer. And there are others. There are other themes that match up. The author of 1 John claims to be an eyewitness. He was there. So when he writes, get back to 1 John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, He's speaking from personal experience. He was there. He saw this. He saw everything that is written about Jesus. He was there to see it. When he writes this, moving on now, assuming that we know this is John the Apostle, when he writes this, he's an old man. He was pastoring, as church tradition says, the church in Ephesus, which was planted by Paul, John went there to retire, evidently. And as he was pastoring the church in Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor, he was overseeing six other churches, which shouldn't be too surprising. That's a total of seven churches, which are the seven churches in the book of Revelation that uh, he wrote to. At this time, he is the last apostle. Everybody else has gone, passed on, been martyred. Last one, he writes the gospel and the epistles somewhere in the last decade of the first century. So early 90s, 95 maybe. The emperor Domitian was in power until 96 A.D., and at the end of his reign uh, increase he he increased persecution to the church exponentially and it is said that this is when the apostle John was sent to Patmos on the island uh, just sent away you know as a result of being persecuted he was he was exiled there, so that would have been probably 96, and then obviously that's where he was when he received the revelation that he wrote down. So we know who wrote the book, this letter. Who did he write it to? If you look in the Gospel of John, actually I have it written down here, John chapter 20, verse 31, 30 and 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, that's, so that's the gospel of John. In the epistle, in chapter 1, verse 4, he writes that our joy may be made complete. So whereas the gospel was written to unbelievers, so that they can hear the gospel and get saved, recognize who the Lord is, their their need for a Savior, and become saved. The epistle was written to believers so that their joy would be made complete, as he says in verse 4. And you'll see he uses throughout the book the term children a lot, possibly because he was a lot older than everybody else. It's said that he was likely the youngest of the 12 apostles. And he's always listed, when you see him and his brother, it's always James and John. So he was probably the younger of the two brothers. And they think he was probably, most people think he was probably the youngest of all the apostles, which might explain why he's still hanging around. So he wrote wrote this book to believers. Why did he write it? And again, He wanted our joy to be complete. The joy only comes through fellowship, as he writes in verse 4, fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Following error is not going to help you achieve joy, not lasting joy that John, as a pastor, wants all his flock to achieve. He wants them to achieve joy. In Acts chapter 20, Paul prophesies. Don't always consider Paul a prophet of future things. Chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And this happened. Or it is happening. As John writes this letter, that's happening. What was going on at this point in history was the beginnings of what later would be called Gnosticism. It wasn't labeled at this point in time, but it was, it was just starting to take shape. And one of the reasons that John wrote in this book was to combat the, this heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism teaches, because it's still, it's still around, that all matter is evil and that spirit was good. So they they accepted the fact that Christ was God. They accepted his deity, but not his humanity. Because God could never take on human flesh, because the human flesh, it's material, it's bad, it's evil. So God would never join himself to any matter like that. It would be evil. So John fights this this heresy, and again, we'll see it right off the bat. There are many ways. A couple guys that I I consulted said that uh, the first epistle of 1 John is difficult to outline. One possible outline, and I'm not saying that this is the outline I'm going to stick with, just divides it up three ways. God is light in chapter 1. 1 verse 1 up to chapter 2, verse 27. And then from 228 to 421, God is love. And then in chapter 5, God is life. So he, he would divide it up that way. And there are others, there are other outlines. That is a simple outline. John wrote about the most vital aspects of faith so that readers would know Christian truth from error. And again, that was what was on his heart at the time. He emphasizes the basics of faith so that we can be confident in our faith. And again, there are contrasts. In, in In our dark world, God is light. In our cold world, God brings the warmth of love. In our dying world, God brings life. And when we lack confidence, these truths bring us certainty. And in this letter also we are challenged each one of us all the readers us included to consider our own lives to be certain that we are true believers. Major themes in the in the letter of 1 John sin even Christians sin Sin requires God's forgiveness. Christ's death provides it for us. So determining to live according to God's standards in the Bible shows that our lives are being transformed. We heard a little bit about that this morning in Sunday school, if you were here. That uh, if you're a believer, your life is going to show that you're following the Lord. We try to live up to God's standards. We don't deny our sin nature. We don't maintain that we're above sinning. We can't sin. Or minimize the consequences of our sin in our relationship with God. We must resist the attraction of sin, yet we must confess when we do sin. And this will be brought out in the text. We won't get there tonight that far. But there were those that uh, maintained, I don't sin." I'm saved now, I don't sin. And I knew a guy like that. A great guy. I used to see him on jobs we were on. And and he would say that he doesn't sin anymore. Once he got saved, he's no no longer a sinner. So that that belief is still there, being taught today still. Uh, Major theme, love. Christ commands us to love others as he loved us. Love is evidence that we are truly saved. God is the creator of love. He cares that his children love each other. Love means putting others first and being unselfish. Love is action. Showing others we care, not just saying it. To show love, we must give sacrificially of our time and money to meet the needs of others. Family of God. We become God's children by believing in Christ. God's life in us enables us to love our fellow family members. The way we treat others shows who our Father is. We should live as a faithful, loving member of God's family. Truth and error. Teaching that the physical body does not matter. False teachers encourage believers to throw off moral restraints. They could, they could sin because it didn't matter. What they do in their body, The body is inc- inconsequential. It doesn't matter. They don't have to obey. They can do whatever they want. Sin could run rampant in your life, but it doesn't matter because it's your, it's your spirit, your soul, that is important. So that is a heresy that was being taught at the time. It was also taught that Christ uh, wasn't really a man. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, and that we must be saved by having some special mystical knowledge. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, knowledge. They believe that they had a higher knowledge than normal people. God is truth and light, so the more we get to know Him, the better we can keep focused on the truth. Don't be led astray by any teaching that denies Christ's deity or humanity. Check the message and test the claims. Assurance. God is in control of heaven and earth. Because his word is true, we can have assurance of eternal life and victory over sin. By faith, we can be certain of our eternal destiny with him. Assurance of our relationship with God is a promise, but it is also a way of life. We build our confidence by trusting in God's word and in Christ's provision for us. Okay, that—that that is the introduction. So we will move into the text. I'm going to read the whole chapter which is only ten verses, and uh, we we will probably, we're only going to look at the first four verses tonight if we even get that far. First John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and, it, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So you can see here in those verses that already John is, is combating some of the heresies that were around. And again, looking at this text, we see there's no introduction as to who it is that's writing. So presumably, he knew that his audience would know who this is that's writing. No claim to his authority, He assumes that they're going to listen to his teaching and heed what he says. And that what he writes, he's telling us from personal experience. So the church was young at this point. Crucifixion was 50, 60 years prior to this, 2,000 years ago for us. So one would think that maybe in that short period of time, the church would have stayed doctrinally pure, but it hadn't. False teaching had already crept in. And John saw the need to address these things. So he jumps right in. He takes the Gnostics head on in the first few verses. John says, We heard, we saw, we looked at, and touched with our hands. One quick note, the difference between saw and looked at. Saw is obviously... First sight, I see him over there, but looked at. Uh, some some uh, translations use behold, but it's to take a close look, to examine closely, to really, really look at it, you know, get to know him. So that's what he's saying there when he says, We saw and we looked at, and we touched with our hands. He cited personal experience, and he appeared to empirical evidence to support the humanity of Jesus Christ. And remember, the Gnostics proclaiming that God would never take on flesh. John lets everyone know that this was a real person, not a spirit, flesh and bone. One of the verses that they would like to look at is uh, Philippians 2, verse 8. If I can get there, I should be able to quote it. Somebody took it out of my Bible. Philippians 2.8. About Christ, Paul says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So they would say, yeah, he was God. He, it appeared like he was a man, but he wasn't really a man. He just appeared that way. John says, no, that's not true. He was flesh and bone. We touched him he was a real person so in verse 1 here we see he uses the word beginning greek arkē it might refer to the beginning of everything like he used the word in John chapter 1 verse 1 uh, or the beginning of creation it also could refer to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry you know his incarnation The beginning of the reader's experience as Christians, or the beginning of the Christian gospel. So it really could be any of those things. The beginning of the gospel seems like it fits most, most best, consistently, uh, with what else John had to say. If you look at, uh, get back to 1 John in chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. Okay, so he's writing, again, not not new. This is something you've already heard. You've got it. In verse 24, he says, As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you. And verse 311 For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So it's probably likely that when he says in the beginning, he's talking about the meaning of the the beginning of the gospel. The baptism of Jesus at the start of his public ministry and his proclamation, that was the beginning. That signaled the beginning of of the gospel message. Interesting to look at the verbs John uses in 1 John chapter 1 in these first couple verses or in the, in verse 1. First you see the word heard or heard and then seen and then looked at or, or beheld and then lastly handled. This is a progression you can see there and these verbs are all in the in the, what the Greek, in Greek, Greek would be, per, the perfect tense is used to describe a completed action which produced results which are still in effect up to the present time. And it's like John is saying here we heard him, I heard what he said, and it's like I could still hear him talking to me. His ears are, the words are still ringing in my ears. You know, it's, it's a continuing thing. Even though it happened at one time, it's still continuing. John's teaching about fellowship here. The essence of fellowship is increasing intimacy, as the progression in those in those verbs shows that heard, seen, looked at closely, and then he actually handled it in his hands. So our fellowship with God must involve drawing closer to him and viewing him more intently all the time to be genuine fellowship. So it's a continual uh, process. It doesn't stop. You don't reach a certain point and say, I've I've reached it, I'm done, I don't have to do any more, I've I've achieved the the level that that I need to achieve to it's continual. It keeps going on. You're partly familiar with the word for fellowship. It gets thrown around a lot, koinonia. That comes from another word. There's a lot of other related words that go with it. And one of them is koinonos, which means partnership. And from that, we can. It, it fits that fellowship. It's, it's another side to the fellowship issue, theme. I've heard people say, you know, I, I I sinned, you know, whatever. I heard a pastor say it once. You know, he he got mad at somebody cut him off on the road or something. He said, I fell out of fellowship with the Father, you know, because maybe he he had sin in his heart. So he felt like his fellowship was broken at that point. Well, there's a sense where your fellowship, at least partly, that the word koinonos really means a partnership. So if you've been joined to God through Christ, that part of fellowship is not going to be broken. And, you know, that's a whole other series of sermons about security and, and actually being saved or not. So if you are a believer, then uh, at least that much fellowship, that aspect of fellowship can't be broken. In this verse, he says what we have heard. Difficult to say exactly why he used the word we. Uh, It may include all Christians. More than likely, though, it uh, it just represents John and the other eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, likely mostly just the apostles. So he was in this epistle. He's speaking for others besides himself. He's carrying a message on a message on that was given to the apostles. So he is he's just one of many. He's the last one at this point again, but uh, he's just carrying on something that was given to him earlier. And he's still trying to persuade other believers of something that that they hadn't all experienced or acknowledged. And the word of life here probably refers to the message about Jesus Christ, not necessarily about him. In John chapter 1, we recognize that the word became flesh. Okay, So we know the word back then in the gospel is just a synonym or a name for Christ, whereas here it probably refers to the message. The phrase word of life seems more likely to describe the message about the person who is and who personifies life. John probably spoke of Christ as what, like what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have seen, because he was trying to emphasize here the the content of the gospel message and not necessarily the person of Christ. We move into verse 2. And again, life, the word life here is a title for Christ, just as he used the word word in John chapter 1. Life is a name here for Christ. It reflects Christian experiences about which John wrote. Whereas Word reflects the facts Jesus declared and that John recorded in the fourth Gospel. Grace and truth explain the logos in John's Gospel, John 1:14. But light and love clarify life in his epistles. We move into verse 2 here, and we look at these verbs. Manifested, seen, bear witness, proclaim. A similar progression. It shows the result of contemplating Jesus Christ and enjoying his fellowship, namely witness. First you see the manifested Christ, then having seen him, he or she is able to bear witness to the fact. You know, I I saw him. Finally, one feels impelled by what that one has seen to announce to others the message of life. You hear the message, you get saved, you're filled with joy, and you want to share that joy with others. There's a progression there, and that's what he is aiming at, I think, or getting to with these, this uh, progression in these verbs here. There's a strong stress on the eternality of, of life, Jesus Christ, in this verse. The emphasis is on the quality of the life, eternal, and its e- equality with the Father make this point. So the, the incarnation is in view here. Eternal life is a dominant theme in the epistle. One writer, not sure who, stated that the eternal life is synonymous with salvation. Moving into verse 3, you here in this verse we proclaim to you also, it had to have been the genuine believers in view here. In, in view of how John referred to them uh, in chapter 2, 12 to 14, little children. That word, that phrase shows up a few times there in 12 to 14. Uh, in verse 21 or verse 18, children, verse 21, I've written to you. Uh, written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. Not because you don't know the truth, because you do know it. So they must have been genuine believers, as we said before. They knew Jesus. They had a relationship with the Lord. But they hadn't known Jesus the way the apostles did. They hadn't seen it firsthand. So this verse here we're looking at, verse 3, introduces the purpose of the epistle, at least one of the purposes, purposes, and its main theme. That you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The main theme of this epistle, then, is fellowship with God. John wrote, so that they could enter into and continue to enjoy the intimate fellowship with him that the, the apostolic eyewitnesses enjoyed. You can look at Acts 10, 40-41 if you're taking notes. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Here we are given, without any hesitation, a description, the summum bonum, Latin for highest or ultimate good, ...of the Christian life. Here indeed is the whole subject, the ultimate, the goal of all Christian experience and all Christian endeavor. This, beyond any question, is the central message of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. And that would be intimate fellowship with the Father. Fellowship requires and rests on information, a common body of knowledge and mutual acceptance of that knowledge... And John's writing to share this information with his readers. He needs to correct what's wrong, make sure they understand what the truth is, and he wants them to know it, wants them to understand it. So it would be wrong to think, as some have said, that fellowship just means that you're a Christian. It's so much more deeper than that. False teachers were preaching information about Jesus Christ that was not true. John wrote to combat their deception. This epistle was written to a community of believers that was dealing with fallout from the departure of persons. People left. People left the church. They had beliefs and practices that John did not approve of and they left they were teaching error and they were booted out for good reason verse 4 these things we write so that our joy may be made complete so these things refers to what John is writing in this epistle not only would his readers experience full joy, but so would John. Again, John is a pastor. He's a pastor at heart. He was an apostle. He's a pastor, and he has the heart of a pastor. And he wants his readers, the sheep, to increase in their knowledge, to draw closer to the Lord and, and improve Uh, their walk and their relationship with the Lord, and increase the fellowship. And joy is the product of fellowship with God. So when there's no joy, there is no fellowship. He wants our joy to be complete. Summary. Good timing. John wrote as an apostolic eyewitness, he identified two dangers to readers that are still prevalent in the church today. One, the assumption that Christian fellowship is possible without common belief in Christ. You can have, you can have fellowship but not be following him. And the other is the assumption that someone can have a relationship with God without a relationship with Christ because we know that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. John wrote this epistle so his readers might join and continue in the fellowship with God that is possible only for those who have seen God as the apostolic eyewitnesses of the incarnate Christ had done. Obviously, they will never, on this side of glory, see Christ the way the apostles did John's hope is that they will get as close as they can with what he's trying to teach them. He has the heart of a pastor. Cannot be completely happy so long as some of those for whom he feels responsible are not experiencing the full blessings of the gospel. And I, I know a pastor who feels the same way. We gave a purpose Early on, for the writing of this book, there are actually four purpose statements. We looked at the first two in verse 3 and verse 4. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he gives a purpose. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so there is one purpose. And then in 5, chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wanted to make sure they had assurance. They were saved. He wanted to make sure that they understood that they had it. And we're not going to look at them all. There are ten imperatives here. I can give you the verses. 215 to 24, 27, and 28. You're writing fast. Chapter 3, verse 1, verse 7, and verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 21. Imperative statements that someday we'll get to those as I work through this book. Any one of these things could give would be a reasonable purpose for writing the book. But verses 3 and 4 give the most comprehensive primary and secondary purposes in this writing. Fellowship, joy. It is usually true I don't know where I got this, but I, I believe it. It is usually true that in the introduction to a book we find the key to that book. In the first four verses of this epistle, we find the key. Amen. That's all we have for tonight. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time you've given us tonight. We thank you for these words written down for us, the Bible. We thank you for this epistle. We thank you for the, the Apostle John the other apostles as well and we just thank you for the holy spirit in our lives we thank you for saving us and god that you give us understanding to these things and we do pray that our joy would be made complete that we would increase in our fellowship that our fellowship with you would be more intimate than it ever has been pray would help us to grow by your word not necessarily by everything that's written in this epistle but in the whole counsel of your word And we thank you for it again in Christ's name. Amen.